Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Well, as we prepare to look to the Word of God this morning, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, let's open up in a word of prayer and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you this morning for having gathered us here and seated us at your feet to hear the preaching of your word. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, empowering me for this task, that as I speak, I might speak as the oracle of Christ. I pray, Father, that within the heart of every hearer, you would give us the gift of faith, the very same faith that Mary had, and that we might be blessed through it. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, we've been looking at a few passages this Christmas season, and I've been really enjoying it. I've, um, you know, some of these passages I haven't preached on before, and so I've had a a very good time. It's been a lot of fun for me. And today we're going to be looking at perhaps the most overlooked Christmas passage of all, and that's the genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now, don't admit it right now, but you know that the genealogy is that portion of Scripture you skip when you're reading, right? Well, I hope to encourage you not to skip it, and I hope to show you just how rich it truly is, um, not by preaching um, a five-hour sermon on it, which I certainly could, but at least we will see with this short sermon just how much there is in these genealogies. So let's look at it. It's Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It's the Christmas genealogy, and really Christmas is the culmination of a genealogy. So let's look at it. Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I haven't lost you yet, have I? Got a little bit more to go, and I'm going to read faster than I normally do, but just listen as it rolls through the generations. We're covering a vast amount of time from Abraham to Jesus. And we're covering stories that if you knew your Old Testament, it would, would spark in your mind. And we're covering all of this very quickly. In verse 7, And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jump and Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. At the time of the deportation to Babylon. <laughs> and now we move to the post-exilic period. Covered the period of the patriarchs. And we've covered the Davidic period. And now we move to the post-exilic period. And after the deportation to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, 
the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Wow. I didn't read all of that to impress you with my ability of pronouncing these names. Although I will say it's top notch, but no. (laughs) And I definitely practiced, I promise you. But I wanted to read all of this to just to leave you with the impression of God's sovereignty over time and space, over his faithfulness to his covenantal promises, of his mercies down through the ages. We're going to talk about each one of these aspects, but I just wanted you to be impressed by the word of God just for a moment. Let me read verse 17 because this is one of my main points. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The Abrahamic period, 14. The Davidic period, 14. And the post-exilic, that is after the deportation to Babylon period, 14 generations. Wow. So what do we have here? What are we to make of this? There's a lot. Real quick, I'll rattle off a few things. First of all, you see that Matthew is drawing an an inseparable link between the Old and the New Testament. We call them the Old and the New Testament, but they are one book, the Bible. The New Testament is the last chapter of that book. It is unfortunate that in our world and in America, and this is one of the problems with America, one of the most fundamental problems with America, is that the Old and the New Testament have been divided from each other. But what God draws together, let no man tear asunder, Christ Church. Matthew is clearly here showing you that Jesus has come to fulfill all that was spoken of by the prophets and by Moses. He is not the new and the fundamentally distinct. He is the culmination He is the blossoming of all that came before. The Old Testament opens up as a small little pinprick of light, but as the generations unfold, one after the next, it opens up in an ever-widening angle which illuminates the whole earth. It does not stop at the page between Malachi and Matthew, but it expands and blossoms as it always was intended to do. Very important. And you can see the clear connection here. He's also establishing the right of Jesus to the throne of David. Of course, you know if you've been at Christ Church for a while that Jesus sits on the throne of David now and he is ruling and reigning over all the nations and he rules over the nations with a rod of iron and this began at his ascension and it will end when he puts all of his enemies under his feet. He is ruling and reigning. But how does he have the right and the claim to the throne of David? Because it was promised to David in one of those ever-widening promises, that one of his descendants would be seated upon the throne over all creation. How does Jesus have the right? Well, this is very interesting. Because if you'll notice, this genealogy is not the genealogy of Mary. Did y'all see that? It's the genealogy of Joseph. But Jesus isn't even genetically related to Joseph. So why do we need the lineage of Joseph? Well, because the covenant promises and the inheritance and the claim to the throne does not pass through genetics, it passes through covenant. 
and covenant you are in if you are born to and or adopted by. And Joseph adopted Jesus. And therefore, Jesus has a claim to the throne of David, a descendant, Joseph being a descendant of David. But there's even more here. Because if you look up in the list, Jeconiah, verse 11, don't ever name any kid Jeconiah. Right? <laughs> It's almost as bad as Ahab and Jezebel. No Jeconiahs in Christ church. Because Jeconiah was cursed by God. The curse was that none of his descendants would ever sit on the throne of David. And yet here he is in the lineage of Jesus. That's why theologically and according to fulfill all prophecy, it's important that Jesus not be genetically related to Joseph at all. But genetically related only to Mary. There's another thing here. Matthew is also establishing Jesus as the seed of Abraham. Not to be confused with all of the children of Abraham, which are like the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. That's you and I. But the, capital S, seed of Abraham, which is that one, that offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And his name is Jesus Christ. So Matthew is establishing Jesus as the seed of Abraham and the one who has the right to the throne of David. He is the one to fulfill and to bring about the total and final accomplishment of all that was promised in the Old Testament. Amen? There's a lot there. I told you. I told you. But that's not even what I'm going to preach on this morning. That's just, you know, that's lanyap. What I want you to see is in verse 17 specifically. I found this most interesting this week. It says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. How many generations or how many 14s is that? That's three 14s. Isn't that something? Now, how many 7s is it? It's six. So if it's three 14s, it's six 7s. Let's say that again because of math. Three fourteens is the same thing as six sevens, which makes Jesus the seventh seven. Isn't that something? Wow. There is a portrait being painted by the divine artist. And his paintbrush is humans, generations. And his canvas is time. That's something. You know, you think Michelangelo did something beautiful and majestic and, and uh, you know, something we should always appreci- appreciate, the Sistine Chapel with paint and plaster. But God is painting us a beautiful portrait of symmetry, of order, of sovereignty, and of providence, of faithfulness, and he's painting it with moms and dads and wives and husbands and children and years. Wow. And we all believe that history, and we all believe that the heavens declare the what? The glory of God. But so does history. Everything declares the glory of God. If you have eyes to see it. So Jesus being the seventh seven, let me little add just a little bit to this. And it's not here in this passage, but um, from other passages, we know that Jesus began his ministry on a Sabbath year. That's the seventh. And he uh, began preaching and began his earthly ministry on the Sabbath day. Luke chapter 4 in his town of Nazareth at the synagogue. 
and the year was the 49th year, um, the beginning of the 50th year, which is the year of Jubilee, seven sevens. This is, God's getting carried away with this now. So that when Jesus is raised from the dead, he's raised from the dead on the eighth day, which is the first day of a new week, the first day of a new creation, after he has already accomplished all that was prophesied in the old creation, which is why we go to church not on the seventh, but on the first. Did you catch all of that? I'm not saying it again, but that's why we record these sermons. Amen. I just want you to see, and you don't have to understand all of that. That's not really the point. The point is for you just to scratch the surface of God's artistry, of his creativity, of his beauty. If you stand back from this genealogical record, you see the face of Jesus Christ himself, the blossoming of all that God ever promised. If you zero in to any aspect of this genealogy, you also see it in in even more nuance. Wow. So the few things I want us to see this morning, I think there's three, maybe four. The first is that this is a display of God's sovereignty. It's also a portrait of mercy and of faithfulness to us. So let's first talk about sovereignty. What this means is that, and as you well know, God elected his people before the very foundation of the world. It is in Ephesians chapter 1 and many other passages and It is a discombobulating truth to the American individualistic mind. It really bursts our bubble. Um, But it is explicitly taught in Scripture that God chooses us before the foundation of the world. You may want God to harmonize that with what makes sense to you, but he refuses to give grace to the proud. You must receive what is in the text of Scripture. He elects. He sovereignly chooses But not only does he elect before time, he then providentially guides every single detail within time so that it comes true. And in this genealogy, we see that he orchestrates genetic codes from the smooth skin of Jacob to the barrenness of Rachel to the average looks of Jesus to the height or the lack thereof of Zacchaeus even, right? He controls the genetic code. He picks your spouse. He picks when you will marry them. He picks when you will have children, how many children you will have, which ones will live and which ones will die. He elects, he ordains, he predestines, and he sovereignly administrates all aspects of time and space that his will might be done perfectly. And beautifully, we might add. Now, you might crack open your systematic theology textbook right now. Remember some of your seminary classes. Hopefully not. And you might stand up on the judge's bench and say to God, well, how can this be reconciled with free will? How are we to reconcile God's sovereignty and man's human responsibility? And I would just ask you to stop doing that and believe what the Bible says. Systematic theology is very helpful. I love systematic theology. I love frameworks. And I'm glad we have everything in compartments. But don't ever let your systematizing or your compartmentalization or your framework keep you from believing the most clear and explicit texts of Scripture. Like Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Believe it. 
Ask God to help you understand it, but believe it. He will give grace to the humble. Amen? This is not fate, just in case you're objecting to that. It's personal. Fate's not personal. This is personal. This is intimate. This is hands-on. And this is not chance. It's ordered divinely. And this does not make you you a robot or an automaton. You must believe. And you reap what you sow. And how do you reconcile all of those things? I don't know. And frankly, I don't care. I believe the Bible. And you should too. Amen? All right, moving on. This is also an, an amazing and elaborate portrait of God's mercy. See, because none of our ancestors nor any of our descendants will ever deserve this, right? It's all mercy. That's why Mary says his mercy extends from generation to generation. Let's just go through the list real quick. Not every single one, you know, don't panic, but let's just look at a few here. Abraham was a righteous man, but not at first. He was a pagan at first. It's a... Insane that the people of Jesus' day boasted in the fact that they were the children of Abraham. Well, Abraham was a pagan, right? You should boast in grace, right? not genetics. And uh, let's look at the next person on the list. I think that's uh, Isaac. He doubted the promise of God and tried to give the blessing to Esau when God clearly told him it was for Jacob. Doubting Isaac. And then there was Jacob, who seems to have been a terrible father, his 12 sons selling their brother into slavery. If your sons sell a brother into slavery, you've missed the mark as a dad. (laughs) And then there's Judah who went to visit a prostitute. And then the next day he found out that his sister-in-law was pregnant. His daughter-in-law was pregnant. And he had her to be executed until he found out that that was his baby. And so after this incestuous, illicit, and illegal sexual encounter... He finally receives the child. Yeah, that's one of Jesus' ancestors, Judah. And then there's Jehoiakim, who was cursed by God. And then there's the prostitute, Rahab. Worse than that, she was a Canaanite. And then there's the polygamy of Solomon, the polygamy of David, the polygamy of all of them. And there's the abortions of Ahaz. If you'll read the stories of Ahaz, he offered up his children to the fires of Molech. And then worse of all, and Matthew certainly wants us to see this. Look at verse 6, if you would. I think worst of all, probably worst of all. And David was the father of Solomon. And then Matthew has to go and put this prepositional phrase in the middle of this giant genealogy. Nobody else gets a prepositional phrase. Just David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You can see that they're writing these gospels in the context of a people who are boasting in heritage and genetics rather than having faith in the Messiah. So he's deconstructing all of that for sure. But David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You know, this is a testimony of mercy. This is generational mercy. This is the mercies of God rolling downhill like a snowball. Mercy. This is a promise to us that God still draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Amen? That's good for us, right? But this is also a tale, a beautiful tale. I mean, 
Moby Dick, uh, Herman Melville, they say is the greatest novel of American history. you got the novels of Dostoevsky. Wow, amazing pieces of art. They are gibberish, two-year-old gibberish compared to this story. Right? See, the gospel promise goes like this. It's Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, and it was referred to by Paul as the gospel in Galatians chapter 3, and this is what it sounds like. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, Abraham, and your offspring after you throughout their generations, their generations, for an everlasting covenant. It means it is not, you know, going to end in time. And what is the promise of this covenant? To be God to you. That is, to save you, to regenerate you, to give you grace, to give you faith, to give you the land, to give you everything, both spiritual and physical, that entails being given God. If you get God, you get everything. If you don't get God, you get nothing. And he will be God to him. Of course, this is finally fulfilled in Emmanuel, God with us. God to us. But he is not only promising to be Abraham's God, he is promising to be the descendants of Abraham's God, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is an essential promise of the gospel. It is reiterated throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. It at no point ends. It continues down through the generations after generation after generation after generation to a thousand generations as Exodus chapter 20 says. And that's why Mary says in Luke chapter 1, verse 54, when Jesus came, she said, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Amen. But what about you? Because very likely none of you are genetically related to Abraham. Well, maybe we are and we don't know it. Maybe some of you do know it. But let me just say this real clearly. The promise was never because of genetics. It was always because of covenant. In fact, when Abraham was given the promise, his household was probably about somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 people. We know for a fact that when he went to fight the kings of Sodom, he had 300 fighting men. That means there's a lot of women and children. So that when he receives this promise for him and his offspring and his entire household, in fact, they are all circumcised, all the men. So you see, it has nothing to do with genetics. In fact, there's many people who descended from that promise that weren't related to Abraham at all, but rather were related to his bond slaves and his maidservants. You factors know, you know as well, as when they crossed through the Red Sea, they had Egyptians with them and they had foreigners with them. And of course, you know Rahab the Canaanite, and Ruth, the Moabitess. Amen? It's not genetics. It never was, and it never will be. When a Gentile wanted to be joined in the covenant, he would be baptized and circumcised if he was a man, and then he would become um, a child of the covenant. When the covenant is made in the New Testament, it is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The new reconstituted house of Israel and the house of Judah, which is why Jesus has 12 apostles for the 12 tribes of the new Israel. And we, the Gentiles, are grafted into that promise. And that promise continues to roll down the ages, generation to generation, for all of time. And it has nothing to do with genetics. It has to do with covenant.
Okay? This is what the psalmist says, 103 verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Is that you this morning? Do you have his mercy? Do you fear him? And his righteousness to children's children. This is a gospel promise. It is a beautiful one, a majestic one. To such as keep his covenant and to those who remember his commandments to do them. So you can have the faith of Abraham. You remember when Abraham heard this gospel promise? Right? Paul said, seeing that God would one day justify the Gentiles, he preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. Right? You can do just like Abraham. You can receive this in faith. And when Peter says, the promise is for you, Acts 2.39, the promise, which is the New Testament word for the covenant, the promise, that is the promise that was given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and extended all throughout the promise, all throughout the prophets. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Have you been called by the Lord? Perhaps you came from a pagan family. You were a stranger to the covenant. Your, your parents were cut off and had no concern for the things of God, but you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ later in life. Amen? You believed upon it, and you were baptized upon a credible profession of faith, as you should be. These promises are yours. And what is the promise? The mercy of the Lord from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So you can believe like Abraham as well when Paul says to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Amen? You can say amen to that, can't you? Want to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But we cannot conclude the gospel decree at this point. What God has drawn together, let no man tear asunder and your household. It's always been true. And it is still true. It is discombobulating to the spirit of the age and to the individualism and the self-autonomy of man here in the United States of America. But the gospel remains true. This is why when Zacchaeus heard the salvation word from Jesus, he heard these words, today salvation has come to this house. The building wasn't getting saved. The oikos was the household. If you put the blood on the lintel, you can, by grace, through faith, be sure that when the death angel passes, no one in that family will be dead. Now you're saying right now, but what about this and what about that? What about chapter 3 in my systematic theology textbook? And what about this objection and that objection? And what about free will and sovereignty and the divine secret decrees of God? Don't do that. As your pastor, don't do that. God will help you to harmonize all the promises of Scripture with what your reason makes sense of right now, if you believe. But if you refuse to believe the explicitly stated promises of Scripture... You will get no help. No help in understanding. 
And that will, be a, that will be a detriment to your life and to your faith as a Christian. Believe on this promise and you will be saved, you and your household. This is why every single baptism of an adult in the New Testament is included with that adult, their household. Lydia, Cornelius, Stephanus, not the eunuch, right? For obvious reasons. And this promise applies to your children, whether born biologically to you or adopted because it flows through covenant, not genetics. Which is why I firmly believe that under the lintel of my house are my biological kids and my adopted one. And I've never doubted that, even though I wasn't able to harmonize this with the text of Scripture. And this applies even to your dead children. That's right. Everyone believes at a funeral that the babies go to heaven, but upon what basis? Are there any promises which we can claim? And indeed, there are. There are. This is why I know that my two biological children that died and my one soon-to-be-adopted foster child who died, I will go to them. They cannot come to me, but I will go to them. And which is why David said of his dead child, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 16, I will someday go to where he is. Because he believed what? Sentiment? No. Because children were innocent? No. Because they were cute? No. Because of tradition? No. Because of the gospel promise which rings true down through the ages, from generation to generation, I will be God to you and to your children after you, to a thousand generations. I receive that. I hope you will receive it as well. I hope you will taste it, chew on it and digest it. Believe it and live accordingly because it is gospel truth. You say, but Pastor Brandon, you don't know my family. You don't know how chaotic, scrambled. You don't know it. How can this possibly be? How can I claim this promise? That's why Mary sings it like this. Verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Let's all stand. Merry Christmas to you all. I hope it is the most merry Christmas you ever have. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your promises. And we thank you that in time and space, you sovereignly administrate all the various details of our lives to fulfill your promises to us. May we do what we're supposed to do when given a promise. May we believe it. May we teach our children to believe it. May we not reject it as Esau. May we not discount it as unworthy but may we receive it as good news and live accordingly. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.